Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome again to this particular session. In case you are unsure as to where we are, I'd like to direct your attention to the PowerPoint slides that are entitled Souls Conversion. We had just begun that particular part of our study, and I believe it would be on the third slide that we're ready to begin to make some observations. I would like to remind you that the first three PowerPoint slide series, that would be the one entitled Introduction, and then one entitled Historical Background, and finally the one entitled uh, uh, Souls Conversion, would be the three that would be the subject of your first major test in this particular course. We were beginning to talk about the man named Saul of Tarsus and his conversion. And I'd like to reflect for just a moment on the very meaning of the word conversion itself. Uh, sometimes it seems to me that we think in terms of conversion as a, a time when somebody changes his mind or he's convinced that perhaps a particular way of doing things was not right and he went in another direction. But a conversion expresses the idea of a complete and thorough change of one's life. And I think that when you think about the Apostle Paul, you look at an individual who changed the complete course of his life, a diametric opposite change in the way that he was believing and living. And so the uh, account of the road to Damascus and the days that followed are very significant ones because here is the thing that precipitated the man who wrote a large part of your New Testament, who was profoundly influential in Christianity and still is, and the man who was the greatest preacher and missionary of his day, with the obvious exception of Jesus himself. So uh, this is a moment that made a lot of difference. We may want to ask ourselves the obvious question. How does Paul's conversion differ from ours? I don't necessarily mean when I ask that whether or not he was baptized or the like, but how is it that Paul's conversion meant a complete change of the way he lived and it resulted in this vibrant, evangelistic, uh, enthusiastic, zealous service for God in the way that sometimes in our expression of Christianity we do not see? Now, I take you to the road to Damascus, that very signal moment in the history of the church, I think it's fair to say, as Saul of Tarsus is heading towards Damascus with the intention of persecuting Christians in that city. And there he's met with a bright light. I'd like to turn your attention to Acts chapter 9 and verse 4 in that particular moment in his life. Acts chapter 9 and verse 4. I'll begin with verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate 
nor drank, uh, is a very matter-of-fact rendering of uh, the conversion of Saul at that particular moment, uh, the Lord Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. I think you need to uh, recall that this is the very last person that the uh, man from Tarsus ever expected to see. He didn't expect to see Jesus. He thought Jesus was a fraud. He thought that the individuals who claimed that Jesus had been raised from the dead were either deluded or dishonest. But he certainly didn't expect to be talking to this man whom he believed to have been dead. In the strictest sense, of course, Paul was not persecuting Jesus. Notice the language that Jesus uses. Why are you persecuting me? But he was persecuting the church. And it's fascinating to me to see that when one persecutes the church, the head of the church takes it very seriously indeed. Uh, we're reminded of the passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus speaks about the end of time and where, where he expresses the idea uh, that people come before the judge and the judge says, um, come into my heaven uh, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. And, and notice uh, uh, that the individuals then would have said, no, when did we see you that way? And he says, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Here Jesus is taking it very personally, uh, the way people treat his church. I think it's not that hard to understand. Uh, those of us who are parents uh, could certainly say that we would much rather somebody come up to us and say something insulting or harsh to us than to have to watch as they say something harsh and condemning to perhaps our child. Uh, that would make us far more angry than if the wrong was done directly to us. Uh, Augustine, who was an early church father, had this to say about that account. It was the head in heaven crying out for the members still on earth. Here Jesus was the head of the church and he was without question caring for and expressing that care for his own people. I wonder if Jesus still feels that way about his children. I wonder if he still feels that way about the church when, when we say disparaging things about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you suppose the Lord still feels as if we are persecuting him as much as anything else. Notice Saul's question back to the Lord. Uh, uh, he says, who are you, Lord? That was the reply uh, uh, that uh, then came the reply that Saul must have never expected to have heard. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. Here, the Apostle Paul had dedicated himself for some time uh, to try and destroy the following that Jesus had. Uh, the Christians that were claiming to follow the risen Jesus, and yet in this instance we see that uh, uh, he, uh, the Apostle Paul, or at least Saul of Tarsus, who didn't believe in his existence, was following him on this particular day, listening to him, speaking to him. I think about uh, Paul's own words in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, if you would find that with me. Here Paul is reflecting on probably this very incident, and it seems as if to him it was a very significant moment. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 5. Here Paul is talking about various people who had been witness to the resurrection of Jesus, various people who had seen the risen Lord. He mentions James. He mentions 500 people at one time in one instance. He mentions several of these. And then as we look at this, he adds, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I assume that the phrase untimely born is referring to the fact that Saul of Tarsus saw the risen Jesus at a date later 
than the other apostles, and yet he did indeed see him. Then he adds, For I am the, le not, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Here Paul is probably reflecting on the very incident that we had just mentioned a few minutes ago in the book of Acts, chapter 9, the moment when Paul was speaking to the risen, living, victorious Jesus. And that seemed to be the beginning, at least, of the change in the Apostle Paul's life. Webster's Dictionary defines conversion this way. It says, it's a change of attitude, emotion, or viewpoint from one of indifference, disbelief, or antagonism to one of acceptance, faith, or enthusiastic support. I like that definition. It tells me that we're doing far more than just deciding uh, what location we worship on a Sunday morning. It tells me that we're doing much more than uh, uh, refusing to murder and steal and the like. It's referring to a complete change of one's life. Conversion uh, is like this. Mostly we're convinced, not converted. And it shows in the weak way that we lead our Christianity, uh, the kind of Christianity we produce. Paul was converted to Christ. Uh, we're convinced to give up an hour or so on a Sunday morning. And it seems to me that that is the biggest difference between the way that uh, they, uh, the way that Paul viewed his and the way we view our uh, service to God. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 9, uh, it tells of a three-day period where the Apostle Paul, or at least the future Apostle Paul, is blind, and he is praying, and he's refusing to eat or drink. Paul was the kind of man who took everything seriously. He was an individual who evaluated his actions and, and, and took very seriously uh, the idea of, of whether or not he should serve God in, and in what way he should serve God. And so here is a man re-evaluating the entire course of his life. I think about uh, something that Paul said of himself, Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. Acts 23 verse 1. Paul is looking back at his life and he says this, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now that is a, a, a fascinating willingness of Paul to look seriously and honestly at his own character. I know the preachers have sometimes suggested that, that according to this passage, the Apostle Paul, although he lived in good conscience before God all of his life, was in fact uh, conscientiously wrong at some points in his life. And I think that's a fair point to make. Uh, he was no hypocrite, and I think that's really what I'm getting to. He was a man who, if he believed something was true, would act on it. Uh, Paul was not an individual with any guile or any duplicity or any cynicism in his heart and in his life. If he believed that Christianity was wrong, he would use everything in his ability to do Christianity in. Once convinced that Christianity was true, once convinced that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and that he was indeed alive and, and reigning uh, uh, in heaven, once he was convinced of that, the Apostle Paul became Christianity's most powerful powerful proponent. He became its most effective missionary. Uh, this is the individual we're speaking of. Uh, right or wrong, he was 100% sincere in what he did. In that respect, he was probably quite unlike we are in many ways. 
in Acts chapter 9 verses 10 and 11, uh, we have another surprise disciple because, as I suggested a moment ago, the Saul of Tarsus did not expect to see Jesus or speak to the Lord, neither did Ananias. Acts 9 verses 10 and 11. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many uh, from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints of Jerusalem. And there he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, and this is going to be significant, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Apparently then, uh, uh, Saul is not the only person surprised to see or to speak to Jesus. Ananias also is. I suspect Ananias was laying low. Uh, apparently they had heard of oh, this man Saul and his intention to come to Damascus. And so the last thing that Ananias really wanted to do was to go speak to this uh, very zealous uh, Jew who was trying to do in the early church. I want you to particularly note though the word that the Lord uses when he speaks of Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9.15, he tells Ananias that this man, that is Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen instrument. That's a, that's a stunning statement, it seems to me, because Ananias is saying, it does not look to me like he's a good candidate for evangelism. It doesn't look to me like he's likely to uh, come over to our side. But the Lord seems to say exactly the opposite. He seems to be saying, here is an instrument, one I've chosen, one specifically designed for what I have in mind. And I, I love that idea. The Apostle Paul was indeed the perfect person to do the job that God had called him to do. I have noted four things in this segment uh, that make Saul of Tarsus the perfect chosen instrument for the task that God had in mind for him. Number one, Saul of Tarsus had great integ integrity and great commitment to what he believed to be right. We had noticed that a moment ago. He was a man who lived in all good conscience before God all of his life. Here is a man that nobody could stand up and say, why are you acting like something that you don't really believe? Because Paul was 100% and always was 100% enthusiastic about what he believed in. Number two, Paul's rabbinical training under Gamaliel made him a deep thinker and a great Bible scholar. I wonder what the equivalent, the modern equivalent of uh, Saul of Tarsus being trained by the great Rabbi Gamaliel would be. Could we suggest perhaps that the uh, young man Saul had gone to the equivalent of a Yale or a Harvard or an Oxford or a Cambridge and received training from the very finest theologians of our day? Gamaliel was exactly that. And I think it's no accident that the Lord spotted this man with his deep thinking and his great rabbinical training. Sometimes in our day and age, we seem to disparage uh, intellectual uh, advancement. We seem to think that uh, there's something wrong with a person who will develop his mind and develop his knowledge of the world around him and of reading literature and history and, and those kinds of things. But that was not the way Saul of Tarsus was and it's not the way the Lord looks at it either. Number three, 
Saul of Tarsus's upbringing was in Gentile Tarsus. We've made something of this point already, but, but please note that in a way that uh, Peter or John or some of the other, other individuals in the church were not, Saul was perfect a perfect individual, a perfect instrument to go to Gentile cities and speak to Greek people. Uh, if you just read Paul's epistles, you can tell that his vocabulary and his Greek usage is far broader and far deeper uh, than, for instance, John, who was, after all, an Aramaic or Hebrew speaker first and a Greek speaker second. Uh, the only writer in the New Testament whose Greek rivals that of Paul would be Luke who wrote Luke and Acts, and you might recall that Luke was indeed a Gentile, not a Jew, and so he was writing in his own language. So Saul of Tarsus was, was, was a Greek in many respects, and yet number four, his Roman citizenship would benefit him several times in his ministry. Again, we have emphasized that, but my point at this juncture is to say that, that um, in spite of the way Ananias might have looked at it, and in spite of the way the early church might have seen it, the Apostle Paul was already being developed developed as God's special person to do God's particular job. God was training this man, directing him, even though he did not know it, to be the perfect leader in the early church that he became. Ananias uh, uh, was an individual who must have taken considerable courage to go speak to Saul of Tarsus. Of course, the Lord told him to, but many people have declined to do what the Lord has asked before and since. So Ananias went to the home of Judas on the street called Straight, and there he sat down and, and did the honors taught Paul and baptized him. I pause to make an observation that there are many individuals uh, in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, who are not terribly well known and who perhaps did not have a very uh, famous part to play in the growth of the church in the way that Peter or the Apostle Paul did. And yet, like Philip in John 1 verse 46 and Andrew in John 1 verse 41, these were, were quieter men who are otherwise unknown except perhaps for a few verses in the New Testament, and Ananias is the same way. Can you imagine being the man who baptized the great Apostle Paul? Can you imagine being the man who opened the eyes of Saul of Tarsus, both literally and spiritually, so that he could begin his work for the Lord? Now, as we begin to think about the uh, newly converted Saul of Tarsus, and as I think back to the three days and three nights that the Apostle Paul uh, spent in Damascus uh, praying and neither eating nor drinking, it seems to me that those three days must have been a powerful impetus for the rest of his life. I wonder what was going through his mind. We can only guess, of course, because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but I suspect that Saul of Tarsus was reevaluating his life. He was looking back over the course of his life and asking, where did I go wrong? Where did I misunderstand God's ways and God's designs? How could I have missed it? And I wonder also if he wasn't running through his mind various Old Testament passages and, and now seeing them more clearly and saying to himself, why, yes, that messianic prom pr promise in the Old Testament did fit what Jesus did. Uh, yes, that certainly is what uh, the Old Testament was talking about and beginning to connect the dots to draw the picture of the Old Testament as a book that was leading towards Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we have some additional biographical material about Saul of Tarsus. Uh, if you would, note first of all Acts 9, beginning with verse 23. Acts 9, verse 23. When many days had passed, we read, the Jews plotted to kill him, 
but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. This would presumably be in Damascus. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, uh, there's something that you, you might have thought you could only read in a, an adventure novel. The Apostle Paul being put in some large wicker basket and being lowered perhaps by rope from the wall of a city down onto the ground. He escapes from Damascus. We have two other passages that at least refer to this. Note, if you would, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32. At Damascus, the governor king, under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped in his hands. The description that's given there makes us think that perhaps this was somebody who had a home that was built into the wall of the city of Damascus and that they had a widow, a window facing outside, uh, looking down the wall, and perhaps that was the home of somebody who was sympathetic to Paul or perhaps even a Christian. There's another biographical statement that Paul makes uh, at about this time, Galatians 1, verses 15 through 17. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. But when he who had set me apart, Paul writes, before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Clearly that would be a reference to the Damascus road and the bright light that Saul saw. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem, but to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. It appears that when Paul left the city of Damascus after his conversion, he went out and spent what he calls some time in Arabia. Uh, one pictures perhaps going out to a desert area. Uh, he does not say what he did there. He may have done some preaching and teaching. Uh, it is also possible, and some think that this is uh, the possibility, that he went out to Arabia and there he uh, began to study, re-study the Old Testament, and as I said a moment ago, reconnect those dots and begin to build the material and the theology and the understanding of Scripture that enabled him to be the uh, effective missionary and preacher that he became in years later. Uh, I pause to reflect on the fact that the Lord almost always sees an importance in people spending some time preparing themselves for service. Uh, perhaps you could think back to Moses who spent 40 years in the wilderness and one wonders at uh, how he was being prepared in the wilderness to where when he finally meets the Lord at the burning bush he's ready he's the right man he has the right background and experience then to lead the children of Israel back into the promised land or perhaps you could think of uh, uh, Jesus training 12 apostles for a period of three years and again it seems to me how important it is the value that the Lord places on preparation. Uh, it seems to me that we are far too casual in the church today when it comes to uh, the whole idea of preparing people. I know that sometimes young people become uh, impatient. Uh, perhaps they say to themselves, less talk, more action. And there is a sense in which uh, often uh, acting, uh, doing a campaign perhaps, doing door knocking or preaching and teaching or VBSs, particularly with the guidance of older Christians, mentors or something like that, would be an important part of somebody's training. Certainly Jesus was adept both at teaching in the formal sense 
and also at being a mentor and allowing the disciples to do some preaching and teaching of their own. He did both of those things. But my point at this stage is to say that when it comes to serving God, there is no such thing as being over-prepared. When it comes to serving God, we need to give him the best that we have. And it seems to me that that's not an excuse, uh, as in somebody shrugging his shoulders and saying, well, Lord, that's the best that I have. But I think what it's suggesting is that if we have an opportunity to be trained, if we have an opportunity to develop, if we have an opportunity to uh, fine hone the tools that we have, we should do so. Uh, carpenters are always sharpening their tools and what we do as God's people is far more important than carpenters and it seems to me that we should also sharpen our tools too. Now when Paul does finally come down to the city of Jerusalem I have no doubt in my mind that there was great speculation as to what had happened to him and what he was like and whether or not the change uh, from being a persecutor of the church to being a Christian was genuine. In fact, it was more than just curiosity. It appears that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were nervous, even frightened uh, about Saul of Tarsus. Was he really a changed man? Was this perhaps a way to get to know the inner circle of the church and find out who Christians were so as to later come back and arrest these? Uh, there is one man who became Saul's sponsor in this section. If you would, uh, turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is a reference to Saul, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas became Saul's sponsor at this particular moment. Uh, we probably already know Barnabas as a man whose very name means son of encouragement. His actual name was Joseph. If you want to refer to it, it's in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, where we're introduced to a man named Joseph from Cyprus, whose nickname was son of encouragement. I see in this individual a bright, sunny personality, a man who is positive in his outlook, an optimist about people around him. I suspect that Barnabas became hurt on many occasions because he would put trust in somebody and then that person's trust was uh, betrayed. Uh, but I also suspect that many times it was Barnabas's uh, confidence in other people that made the difference in their development. I am sure that a key to Saul of Tarsus' development and a key to his becoming the great apostle was Barnabas. Uh, I say to myself, God bless those individuals and churches all over the world who are brave enough uh, to put an arm around a young person and say, son, I believe in you. Uh, young lady, I think you can go far because it's those individuals that, that encourage and develop churches. And, and it was Barnabas in this occasion who took the risk, and it was a risk, of sponsoring Saul and saying, I believe in him. I believe that his change was genuine. Now Saul spent some time in Jerusalem, we're told, and he also received a certain degree of, uh, of opposition to what he was doing. Uh, we notice in verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. 
but they were seeking to kill him. The Hellenists would be uh, people who, like him, were Jewish people who had grown up in the diaspora, Jewish people who had grown up in Greek cities all over the known world. And so uh, that's probably why he particularly had those discussions with them. Verse 30, and when the brothers learnt this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, I read that, and, and I have in the notes here a statement, the ten silent years. Uh, there's a time then that Saul of Tarsus leaves Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, and the center of the upcoming conflict between Christianity and Judaism, and he goes back up to Tarsus. What was he doing in Tarsus? The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us his activities up there, but we do know this, that these must have been quiet years. The, the map that I have given on the PowerPoint uh, shows the location of Antioch um, on it. It is in the central part of the map and down at the south. Uh, Antioch of Syria. Uh, if you look a little bit north and just around the corner of the coast of the Mediterranean and just about 50 or 60 miles uh, then to the north and to the west would be the city of Tarsus. The two cities are not that far from each other. Now this is a case of meanwhile back at the ranch. Saul is in Tarsus. We don't know exactly what he's doing. Uh, is he preaching and teaching? Is he developing a church there? Or is he laying low? Is he discouraged? Is he still reevaluating his life? Acts doesn't tell us and we have no biographical information from anywhere else. But let's follow Barnabas for just a few moments because he continues to be significant in the Apostle Paul and his development as a preacher of the gospel. Uh, find, if you would, uh, um, the passage in Acts 11, verses 25 and 26. Acts 11, verses 25 and 26. We have Barnabas in the city of Antioch. He's gone up there and he's encouraged the church there. Uh, it's a growing church. It's a metropolitan church. In fact, the Bible tells us it is a multicultural and multiracial church, implying probably that the church of Jerusalem was not so much. Uh, the church of Jerusalem, for obvious reasons, was Jewish. But here in metropolitan Antioch, the third largest city in the ancient world at that time. Uh, there were Jews and there were Gentiles both. And so the city began to take on that characteristic. Barnabas goes up there. He's sent by the church in Jerusalem. He encourages the church there, which is not a surprise. That is his nature. But we read this, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I'd like to emphasize that phrase, to look for Saul. It seems to me that Saul was not easily found. Uh, he wasn't in the yellow pages. He didn't have a website uh, giving his address. Uh, uh, he didn't have a Facebook account. It seemed like it took a little bit of trouble and effort for Barnabas to find him. But it says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met at the ch with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Uh, there, of course, is that very famous statement uh, by uh, uh, Luke uh, to suggest that here for the first time that wonderful name, that wonderful term Christian was used. But I want to reflect a little more on what Barnabas had done. It seems to me that Barnabas is a good team player. Uh, he's an encourager, we've noted that already, but, but it may be, and we're speculating here, but it may be that Barnabas realized that, that, that his role was not necessarily the role of a deep thinker or a scholar or a teacher. And he realized that there was another man who was perfectly placed 
to do that. And that's why he went the 60 or 70 miles to the city of Tarsus, looked for Saul, found him, and brought him back to the city of Antioch. I can only wonder at that conversation. As that door was knocked and the door, the door was opened a crack, and there was Barnabas looking into the eyes of Saul of Tarsus. What did he say to him? Did he say to him, hey, Paul, what are you doing moping around here? What are you doing hiding? Uh, come over to Antioch. I wonder if Barnabas wasn't the kind of individual who recognized that though he had some talents, genuine talents of his own, that Saul of Tarsus as a rabbi and as a deep thinker would be just the right kind of teacher for the young and growing church at Antioch. Because the biblical text indicates that the church grew by leaps and bounds. Uh, the, the, it grew more and more. And then, of course, comes that great saying, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. When you think about that particular term, uh, you probably, uh, or most scholars probably think, of a passage like Isaiah 62 and verse 2. Would you turn back with me to that passage? Isaiah 62 and verse 2. Here is a prophecy that suggests that there would come a day when God's people would be known by a new name, a special name. Here it says, The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name. Isaiah says, that the mouth of the Lord will give. Now, uh, we come back to the passage uh, to, to the passage now in Matthew 22 and verse 16. Matthew 22, verse 16. We read this, And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. What I want you to notice is the use of the word Herodian. Uh, Herod, uh, and then I-A-N at the end of that. Uh, that would be a reference, a grammatical reference, to people who were admirers or followers of Herod. They were Herodians. In the same way, Christians, if I can pronounce it that way, would be people who admired and followed uh, the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus Christ, hence Christians or Christians. The designation I-A-N in Greek or I-A-N-O-S in the way in the Greek lettering referred to ownership uh, as in the use of the word Herodians, uh, people who followed or belonged to Herod. And, and the, the question a lot of uh, scholars have come up with is this, who first came up with the name? Who was it, it says in Acts, that they were called Christians first at Antioch? Who did the calling? Luke seems to assume that by the time he writes his book of Acts, that the name is in common use and is simply giving uh, us the origin of that series. Uh, there are two theories that scholars have come up with. Uh, one of them is that God called them Christian. Uh, that was the divinely uh, appointed name, and they even refer back to the passage we read in Isaiah 62, which says that there would come a day when these people would be called by a name God would give them. The second theory is that the people in Antioch called them Christians. It seems to me that there was perhaps a left-handed compliment. People knew and saw individuals who, who lived such a thoroughly Christ-like lifestyle and who, who named his name so, so commonly and so frequently that uh, they just simply became known as Christians. It's a wonderful comment. 
compliment when you think about it. There are many good terms and solid terms to refer to followers of Jesus by. Uh, we are disciples. Uh, we are servants of God. Uh, we are children of God. There are a lot of names that we could use for people who serve and follow Jesus, but perhaps the most honored and the most wonderful would be Christian, because in that very name, we wear the name of Jesus himself. Uh, you, if you want to look at it this way, in a sense, this is the same thing for individuals as the collective term Church of Christ. In other words, a, a group that has gathered together in honor of Jesus Christ. And Christian would be for individuals uh, the same kind of compliment. The Christians in Antioch were so distinctively completely and thoroughly followers of Jesus that the townspeople simply gave them the name that made the most sense. These people were Christians. I would like to ask the question, what are we known by? What does our community see in us? Uh, do they see in us hardcore knowledge of the Bible? Do they see in us a deep commitment to serving God in as accurate and as biblical a way as possible? Those are good things. Somebody says, well, maybe they should see in us love, uh, love for each other and the like, and that would also be a good thing. But my suggestion is that we have won a great victory if people see in us most dominatingly the character of Christ himself, if they see in us that uh, the characteristics of Jesus Christ. Now, I pause to make some observations because that's the end of that PowerPoint. Uh, this is the material that would be part of your first test in this course. Uh, the three PowerPoints I remind you are the ones entitled Introduction, and then Historical Background, and then Soul's Conversion. I have designed this to be a rather early uh, test so that you can uh, already start to uh, know how you stand in this class and perhaps also early on understand the Michelian system. I remind you, if you've not had a course of mine, that what you would especially be looking for in this particular test would be any of the listings. Anytime I have one, two, three, four given in uh, a particular slide, uh, four things about Paul or five things about the Jews or something like that. And the test question would go something like this. We spoke of four things that uh, about the Apostle Paul, please give me three. That's the way that would go. Uh, we would also, uh, you would also do well to look for any definitions of words. Uh, anytime a Greek word is given and then the definition of that Greek word is added to it, uh, you'll probably see words that are in italics. That would be the Greek or perhaps the Hebrew word. And you might say to yourself, okay, highlight that. Uh, it will all be drawn off of, off of these notes. So as you read through the notes, look at the um, illustrations, the pictures, and obviously take them out. Uh, take anything out that seems to be an illustration done by Mitchell, and then look at the notes of the life of Paul and his background specifically. You probably also need to uh, look at the uh, uh, people who did various things and identify them. Uh, I would look for names like Philip of Macedon and some that defined him or Alexander the Great or uh, someone like Octavian, Caesar Augustus, Mark Antony and find out what they did and perhaps in your preparation write out the notes. Now the test will be timed. Uh, I will probably give you something in the region of 30 minutes to do the test. I am doing that because we're in a situation where I cannot have you in a class room uh, where I can observe and so this would be a test that I hope would be of your memory and of the benefit of your study. Uh, so I wish you good luck in the test. 
I hope that uh, it is something that um, allows you to uh, cement in your mind the material that we have been going over so far. So uh, the next PowerPoint series is the one entitled First Missionary Journeys. That, of course, implies a second and a third missionary journey, and that's indeed the way we will organize this. So if you go onto Blackboard, uh, find the one that says First Missionary Journey, and then in the next few minutes, we don't have that long on this particular session, we may as well start on this. The first missionary journey of Paul probably began in about A.D. 47 or 48. Uh, the church had experienced an unparalleled expansion in its first decade from the time that Peter preached that first sermon and then the church grew by leaps and bounds multiplied in the city of Jerusalem then perhaps you recall that the first persecutions the early Christians spread all over that region note if you would please Acts 8 and verse 4 which describes this very um, interaction uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Uh, ironically, um, uh, this is something that's precipitated as much as anything by Saul of Tarsus himself. Uh, Acts 8 verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his, that would be Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, we read. Uh, here was Saul in his early years of persecution, uh, carrying out what, uh, what we know he did. He ravaged the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Uh, that's the remarkable one in verse 4. Here was this great persecution. Here was this terrifying time for the early church. Here was this uh, specific individual, Saul of Tarsus, who was going to reach out and, and uh, capture as many early Christians as he could. But notice also that the church grew. Ordinary men preached the gospel wherever they went. In Acts 11 and verse 21, there's another reflection on the way that the church had grown. Acts 11, verse 21. And the land hand, I'm sorry, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord again. Here God is with his people, and here he is enabling the church to grow. Uh, we read of this, uh, uh, the church grew by leaps and bounds. They may have thought that was the golden age of the church, but it wasn't. Uh, not yet, because now when the Apostle Paul begins to do his mission work, we see an even greater growth of the early church. Now we come to a significant passage. It's in Acts 13, beginning with verse 1. Acts 13, 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I want us to notice, first of all, that it was the Holy Spirit himself who precipitated the first missionary journey. Uh, the church appears to have been at a time of, of great spiritual preparation. It suggests that these individuals were praying 
and they were fasting. We don't know what they were praying and fasting for. Perhaps they were praying and fasting for guidance. How can we help the church to grow? How can we do your will, O Lord? We don't know. But the response of God was to set apart. Uh, that is a very phrase that has the idea of make holy, uh, set apart for my service, set apart for me these two individuals, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Uh, I suppose if I were candid about my role at Fried Harbin University, one of the things that I would hope for is that something I say or something that I do, uh, some part of my uh, uh, character perhaps uh, could be an influence on young people at Fried Harbin to come up with the same decision. Uh, perhaps there would be two or three or four young people uh, getting together and saying, we'd like to serve the Lord. We'd like to make a difference somewhere. Maybe it's in Haiti to help the poor children there, the orphans and the like. Uh, maybe it would be in Africa. Maybe it would be in inner city Birmingham, Alabama, or in New York City. Uh, it could be anything, but my suggestion is that hopefully at Fried Hardman, in the four years that young people find themselves here, this would be the incubation moment where great leadership and great mission work could be begun. Well, it was the Holy Spirit himself who named Saul and Barnabas for this particular trip. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, it looks like they were making a special effort to dedicate themselves to something. And uh, here, uh, the Lord actually has an idea of his own. He wants Saul and Barnabas to go do this mission work. The role of the church in missions. What is the church for anyway? I suppose sometimes people must get the impression that the church's purpose is to build a church building in a community uh, and be there three times a week. Uh, I'd like to suggest that our uh, vision should be greater than that, uh, that we should see more of the world in our vision, uh, that we should have an idea that as many people should benefit from the church's presence in this community as is possible. Uh, yes, certainly I'm referring to the poor and the unfortunate in our own community. Yes, I'm certainly referring to those who, who need encouragement in drugs or in, uh, uh, in crime or, or in inner cities or anything like that. But my suspicion is that we, we sometimes have forgotten that the purpose of the church is not ski trips to Colorado and uh, not uh, uh, get-togethers to eat meals or anything like that, helpful as those things might be but the purpose of the church is missions the mission of the church is missions so here we are with Saul and Barnabas preparing to do something that the Lord himself wants to do I reflect on that for just a moment you might recall that it was uh, a God who said to the disciples the apostles originally go to Jerusalem and wait until uh, I send you the signal. And then, of course, it was on the day of Pentecost when that exactly happened. The Spirit came onto the apostles, and they began to speak in tongues, and Peter preached that first great gospel message. You might also recall that later on, it was God who, again, uh, tapped Peter on the shoulder in a number of different ways to encourage him to preach the gospel to Gentiles. That was the story of Cornelius. Uh, here, I want you to notice in Acts 13 that for the third time, it is God that has to sort of uh, give the church a kick in the pants uh, to get them to think about uh, going not just to their own city in Antioch with the gospel, but to other locations. And so it is that the first missionary journey with Saul and Barnabas begins. Is the church really about missions? Is that really why we're here? I want you to notice a couple of passages as I close out my remarks today. Romans 15, beginning with verse 22. Romans chapter 15, verse 22. 
Paul says, this is the reason why I have come. I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. The irrepressible soul of Tarsus. Here he says, I have done my work in these regions. I want to go to Rome. I want to meet you guys in Rome. And then I want you to send me on to Spain. Now, what we're doing is we're suggesting that Paul is going to just keep on going until he runs out of territory, until he runs into no more land whatsoever. He still wants to preach the gospel. So here is a man with a vision uh, that is similar to the Lord's vision, it seems to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Certainly the emphasis of this particular verse is that part where God gives the growth. But notice that Paul sees himself as a planter, an individual who goes out to new territory and cultivates the ground for the first time and lays in the seed of the gospel. Uh, Apollos' role apparently was to come behind him and to tend and develop and grow. Both of those are important parts of the task. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Colossians chapter 1 verse 23 the apostle Paul says this interesting thing about the work that had already been done if indeed you continue in the faith he says stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I Paul became a minister Paul can say by the time he writes to the Colossians this is a prison epistle he probably wrote it from Rome in a prison back to uh, the city of Colossae but he can say at that point that the gospel had been preached everywhere under heaven of course this is according to Paul's knowledge this would be the Roman world uh, he did not know about the new world the United States or uh, great extents of southern and central Africa or Asia but the world that he knew the gospel had spread to all of that part and I guess what I'd like to do in the last few moments of this particular lecture is ask ourselves a question uh, you who are listening to me will go to Belgium you'll see an awful lot of people in Europe who do not know Christ and do not serve Christ and I hope it'll be on your heart that you ask yourself how do we influence these people how do we lovingly uh, and yet truthfully reach out to these individuals and give them the opportunity to come to know Jesus because it seems to me that wherever we go that is our responsibility I hope today you have a good day I uh, will uh, speak to you at a later date on the next slide thank you and goodbye <laughs>